Our golden text, of course, is found in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. It's projected on the board. Let's read it. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What I hope to accomplish uh, this morning, and by way of an outline for you, is to uh, first present evidence, if you will, for the need for salt and light in contemporary society. Next, we'll gain, hopefully, a greater appreciation for the meaning behind the metaphor. We'll also consider uh, what it is that enables us to be salt and light in today's society. I'd like to discuss a couple of different approaches with you from contemporary Christian thinkers as to what opportunities might exist for us in today's society to be salt and light. And then finally, I'm going to provide several examples uh, of salt and light that I gleaned from um, the, the newspaper and other sources within the last month or so. The case for salt and light. What is the evidence that we need to be salt and light today? Well, uh, we will talk about the fact that we are entrusted with the truth, that we see the civic order, if you will, unraveling about us. We'll talk about who the gatekeepers are of moral and social thinking today. And I'd also like to conclude with a few comments on our post-9-11 world. First of all, entrusted with the truth and a message of hope, the Great Commission. Everyone is familiar with that. Everyone, It's blazoned in our brains, I think, as Christians, that we have been given this great calling, this great mission, to go ye out into all the world. And so the first bit of evidence I'd like to present is the Great Commission, why we are to be salt and light today. A contemporary Christian thinker, Charles Colson, I have a few of his slides here, said the following, the church has been entrusted with the truth in an age when so many people proclaim that truth does not exist. The church has been entrusted with a message of hope in a culture that has put its hope in temporal toys and human achievement and has seen just how temporal those things can be. What have we done with this message of truth, this message of hope as a people? Well, at least one person uh, is, is, has been somewhat critical of, of what the church has done. It, this quote reads, Despite all the fancy buildings, sophisticated programs, and highly visible presence, it is my contention that the church is almost a non-entity when it comes to shaping culture. In the arts, entertainment, media, education, and other culture-shaping venues of our country, the church has abdicated its role as salt and light. That may be a bit strong. You may not agree with it. One person's viewpoint. But we as Christians have been entrusted with the truth. The question is, what are we doing with it? 
Second piece of evidence is what I call or what has been referred to in an article I read as the unraveling of the civic order. And looking at the uh, camp booklet, I see that um, Dick Slaughter, I believe, has a form that, that incorporates uh, the word unraveling. And, and his is unraveling the glob. Can't wait to hear what that's about. So unraveling the civic order. The unraveling of the civic order is already well underway. Witness the moral anarchy of the popular culture, the logjam of court cases and the overcrowding of correctional facilities, the dissolution of cities, families, and the public institutions, the fragmentation of school curricula from school, preschool through graduate school, the flirtation of the scientific community with godlike possibilities, and the redefining of reproductive freedom in terms of personal convenience, which has led to a holocaust of abortion. I tried to gather some statistics to quantify uh, the decline of contemporary society. You'll see that these, Heidi. Can you just say who the quote is from when you're reading it for the tape? For the, tape. Uh, the, t the quote I just read was uh, by a fellow by the name of T.M. Moore. Thank you. The statistics that you see before you are a little dated. I apologize for that. But um, I think they're just demonstrative of social decline, something that we all know intuitively and we perhaps don't need statistics to convince us. You can make the case that perhaps today, this was 30 years ending 1990, perhaps today the situation is worse, maybe it's improved a little bit in some of those areas. But nonetheless, um, arguably, we see before us the unraveling of the civic order. Hence, another reason we as Christians need to be busy about being salt and light. Are we shaping the culture that's around us? Next, I'd like to suggest that the gatekeepers of civic the uh, gatekeepers of civic order. The gatekeepers of civic order provide yet another opportunity for salt and light in contemporary society. Another Charles Colson quote, we are outnumbered on most social and moral issues, and we live in a culture in which the primary influences, the gatekeepers, if you will, of television, radio, newspaper, and other public forms, are unsympathetic, uh, if not hostile to a Christian perspective. What is meant by gatekeepers? Well, I think what it means is that those who control the cultural messages, those who guard the gate through which we receive cultural messages and influence the way in which we as people are exposed to contemporary society. So there are gatekeepers out there who are unsympathetic to the Christian perspective. What if we do nothing? If we do not respond, that Edmund Burke quote that was in the, in the uh, camp book, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And then finally, I'd like to quickly present the post 9-11 view as to why we should be very serious about our role as salt and light in this world. On September 11, Americans learned what most people across the world already knew. The world is a very dangerous 
place. Think about it. That's fairly obvious. But think how your perspective changed after 9-11 with respect to danger, with respect to the world in which we live. Well, what was at the heart of the way of this change, the way we view the world? What was really at the heart of it? I think what it was was a major competing belief system that's embraced by an increasing percentage of the world's population and whose teachings are antithetical to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's a very basic and fundamental change in the way we view the world. Here a couple of uh, commentators have said, quote, the enemy is uh, in this war, meaning the war on terrorism, is not terrorism, but militant Islam. Salman Rushdie, Rushdie, a name you know from the news, said, of course this is about Islam, a paranoid Islam, which blames outsiders, infidels, for the ills of Muslim society. Well, what then should be our response? We have this new view of the world that we live in as Americans, as people in the free world, as Christians. A Jim Tunkowicz said, for most Americans, the terrorist attacks were evil. The moral relativism that was comfortable on September 10 was shown on September 11 to be a sham. In other words, moral relativism on September 10 suggested that love, I mean, of course we love everybody, but everybody has their right to their opinion and uh, freedom of expression, and let's not judge. But suddenly, the evil came upon the scene. We could see it for what it was. Christianity has a theology of evil that explains events like 9-11 and gives a solution for it. Opening the eyes to the reality of evil is the Holy Spirit's prelude to opening the eyes to the reality of the gospel. So in other words, the post-9-11 world presents Christianity as a cure to social disease of hate and revenge. So, we've been entrusted with a message of hope. We see about us a decline of society. We recognize that the, the, the messages flow through a people through an industry, whether it be media or entertainment, that is not sympathetic to a Christian worldview. And we live in a different world today. That is the evidence for being salt and light. So what does it mean to be salt and light? Real quickly, I think it's important for us to understand uh, some very basic concepts. The first being that being salt and light isn't doing, it's being. As it states on the slide, being precedes doing. In other words, what we do emerges from who we are. And that's what's so critical about being salt and light. It's who we are as individuals, as Christians, that makes a difference. Not that we're going to go do, but who we are is, is the um, cornerstone. I love what uh, Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel all the time and if necessary use words. That's what I'm getting at, about being, not doing. So we can witness to others because we personally are witnesses 
to the love of Jesus Christ in our lives. Do we witness that every day? Do we personally experience the love of Christ in our lives every day? If so, we witness that then to others. Acts 1.8 says, And ye shall be witnesses. Understanding this is the first step in gaining an appreciation for what it means to be salt and light. Then salt, what is it? Uh, Just as a refresher. It's a flavoring. It brings out the flavor in food, correct? Well, from a spiritual perspective, are we flavoring our culture as as a people? If we are salt, we are called to bring flavor to our culture. Or has our culture flavored us in our Christianity? Salt is a flavoring. It's also a preservative. Back in the, uh, the old days, uh, you know, back when they would um, go off on sailing ships without refrigeration, they would pack all of their meat in salt, and that preserved their meat from decay. We are the salt of the earth. Society that is exposed to the elements, if you will, without salt will decay. As a preservative, are we having a positive influence on society? Are we inhibiting the decay of our culture? And then finally, salt is used uh, in the Old Testament days as part of their uh, uh, sacrifice. I have a quote here from Leviticus 2, 12 and 13. And why was salt used as part of the sacrifice? Well, it provided a sweet savor or an aroma that would ascend up to the throne of heaven from that sacrifice. Likewise, we are called to be living sacrifices. So being salt also means that we give of ourselves. And if we do, what is the result? If we are truly salt in today's culture, then the aroma of our sacrifice should linger long after our work is actually accomplished. So if we are to be salt, we are to flavor our culture, we are to preserve the word and inhibit decay as a preservative. And we're also to be a sacrifice, and the aroma of who we are should linger where we are. Jesus also said we are the light of the world. Paul wrote in Philippians, Do all things without murmurings, disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights of the world, holding forth the word of life, that I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. A story that I'd like to share with you that I think really um, dramatizes, if you will, but certainly represents what it means to be a light in the world, took place back in 1987 in Romania, where a minister, a young minister of a Hungarian Reformed church, was at the very center of the overthrow of the communist government there. His name was Laszlo Totes, and he'd just taken over as a, a, a pastor in, a, as I say, the Hungarian Reformed Church after his predecessor had died of a heart attack. 
His predecessor was aligned very closely with the uh, government, and under his so-called unsavory blend of church and state, the membership of this church had shrunk down to 50 parishioners, and their services had been reduced to pretty much ritual. So this young, dynamic, articulate man, Laszlo Tokes, took over as the minister of this church. And soon he began uh, requesting more songbooks, more Bibles. He reinstituted festivals and, and and, and had a vibrant following. And before long, after he had uh, lived such a, a wonderful light and an example in that community, his church had grown from 50 to over 5,000 in just a short period of time. Well, this caught the um, attention of the authorities, of course. And in a short period of time, by 1989, he was issued orders of eviction. And... Um, charged with violating laws of both church and state. Um, So the authorities, uh, he refused that, and he was somewhat rebellious against these orders, and so the authorities began to turn up the heat, so to speak. They increased their pressure on him and other parishioners through tactics of intimidation. He himself was even beaten at one point. Uh, He had a 10-month-old son who they feared for and sent away, Um, and it was not looking good at all. So the the government authorities got to the point where they said that they were going to come in at a date certain and they were going to physically remove him. And the fateful date was uh, December 15th, 1989, that they were to come in and do that. So on December 10th, on Sunday preceding that, Uh, the pastor stood before his congregation and he said, quote, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I have been issued a summons of eviction. I will not accept it. So I will be taken from you by force next Friday. They want to do this in secret because they have no right to do it. Please come next Friday and be witnesses of what will happen. Come, be peaceful, but be witnesses. Well, five days later, on December 15, 1989, the secret police came to take Laszlo and Edith, that's his wife. They brought a moving van for the Tokes' belongings, but they never got to load the truck. Uh, For massed protectively around the entrance to the church building stood a human shield. Heeding the pastor's call, members of the congregation had come to protect his removal. The brick-and-concrete home of the Hungarian Reformed Church sat directly across from the tram stop. Each time the crowded cars and loaded passengers could see the people gathered outside the church building. What's going on, they asked. When they learned what was happening, many joined the group, and some even from other churches, and some were just simply curious onlookers. In that group was a pastor of a Baptist church, by the name of Peter Duglescu. And with him was a young student of his parish by the name of Daniel uh, Gavra. And Daniel opened his coat. He said, look, pastor, what I brought. Fearing that they were weapons, pastor, with great concern, looked and saw 
inside the lining of his coat, loaded down with candles. So it was past one o'clock in the morning now when Reverend Tokes opened the window of his apartment a final time before he went to bed to view this human shield out protecting him. He couldn't believe his eyes. Light from hundreds of candles pierced the darkness, hands cupped close to the people's hearts, sheltered the flickering flames, and the flames lighted their faces with a warm glow. Before dawn on December 17, the secret police finally made their move and broke through the people. As they did so, they took Laszlo and Edith uh, from the sanctuary. With their pastor gone, now the crowd moved the Hungarian, from the Hungarian Reformed Church to the central square of this little town of Timisora. And by now, the armed troops and shields and dogs and tanks had filled the street. But even with the army in place, the people did not retreat, for this had become a full-scale protest against the intrusion of the state. There was no turning back. Daniel, the young student who had the candles I mentioned, and a number of other believers marched into the square carrying a new flag of the revolution, Romania's tricolor with his communist emblem scissored out of the middle. As they marched, Garva linked arms with a young Pentecostal girl. The soldiers opened fire. The girl slipped from his arm, and she was dead by the time she hit the pavement. Daniel barely had time to comprehend what had happened when there was another explosion, and when he fell, his left leg was blown away by a barrage of bullets. In the confusion of the crowd and the darkness, the savage gunfire claimed hundreds of lives, but the people of Timisora stood strong. Though shocked at the cost of their stand, they knew that there was no middle ground. They had decided to stand for truth against lies, and stand they would. By Christmas of 1989, the world reeled with the results of that stand. Romania was free, and Ceausescu was gone. The people of Timisora rejoiced. Churches were filled with worshipers praising God. A few days after Christmas, Pastor Peter Duglescu opened the door of a hospital ward where Daniel had been taken after he was shot. The boy was still recovering from his wounds, bandaged and a stump where his leg had been. But Daniel's spirit had not been shattered. Pastor, he said, I don't mind, such a, I don't mind so much the loss of my leg. After all, it was I who lit the first candle. So that story, dear one, I think typifies what it means to light a candle, to be a light in a dark world. It takes courage, many times standing on our own, but light the candle nonetheless. So, being salt and light is as we've just discussed, but if we keep the salt in the shaker, or as Jesus said, if the light stays under the bushel, what will be the effect? And why would we do that? Why would we keep the salt in the shaker? Well, when we do so, we need to remember that we are retreating from our mainstream culture. So easy to do, so comfortable to do. But nonetheless, we are. What are some of the reasons for retreat? Well, sometimes it's just fear of speaking up. Perhaps it's an apathy about the assaults on our religious principles. You open up the newspaper, you see an assault on our religious principles, and we just go right to the comics. Maybe. The second coming. Well, maybe we have the, 
the, the, um, the, the um, feeling that there's nothing we can do anyway, so why even try? Jesus is coming back. This world we know is going to burn. We know conditions are going to be much worse before he comes. So why is it even worth trying? Or simply just being disconnected from our culture, which we find that it's so easy to do. I'd like to move on, uh, if I could, to discussing a little bit about how we can be salt and light. Well, first of all, recognize our calling. How can we be salt and light unless we recognize who we are and what our calling is? Again, in Acts 1.8, And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the other, uttermost parts of the earth. And in 2 Corinthians, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And what if we fail in this? What if we're not salt and light? Well, T.M. Moore again said, what is required on the part of the church leaders and members throughout the land, that is, an honest examination of ourselves and a willingness to repent of our failures and commit to new priorities for the long haul, may, however, prove even more demanding. And it will be. Next, we need to understand the distinction about being in the world, but not of the world. As Jesus prayed, he said, I have given them thy word. I'll skip down. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy, tr thy word is truth. As though thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And we have a little paradox here, though, don't we? We are in the world and not of the world, but yet our topic is influencing the world, which takes a little bit of dedication and commitment and energy, doesn't it? But yet that's not where our focus really should be. To accomplish salt and light, we need to recognize that we are not citizens of this world. And as, again, T.M. Moore said, I think very well, our ultimate loyalty must be to no temporal polity or culture. So our loyalty is not to the culture we're trying to fix. That is the paradox. We must not exhaust ourselves primarily in seeking to preserve or advance any particular secular vocation or former government or civic order. Am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth when I say that? No. It's being grounded in who we are. It's being grounded in, in, in where our priorities are. And if we lose sight of that, if the uh, end, the means become the end. In other words, if being salt and light becomes its purpose itself because we want to change culture and we don't step back and recognize that we are not citizens of this world, then we stand to, to lose what it is we hope to gain because we'll be standing on our own merits. So to be in the world and of the world, we must understand where our priorities lie. But recognizing that we're not about changing, our emphasis should then not be about changing the whole culture all at one time, but yet should be what? Individuals, changing hearts, 
As Colson said, to evangelize today, we must address the human condition at its point of real need. That is the heart. Conscience, guilt, dealing with others, finding a purpose for staying alive and the real source of freedom, of the freedom modern men and women crave. We must be familiar with the prevailing worldview to look for points of contact and discern points of disagreement. And time doesn't permit to read uh, to read this account, but we all know it well. Paul on Mars Hill. What a tremendous example we have. Paul in Athens, knowing what the strange gods were, knowing what the foreign philosophies were of the people, could relate to them. And he could take a stand that introduced them to the gospel because he knew where they were. He knew what, where their, what their belief system was. And that's what we need to do as well. So what does it mean to be in the world? Jesus said, spoke the parable, a king, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Well, as the slide says, permeate society. That's what I take from that, from that um, parable. As leaven would permeate the loaf, that we also are in every aspect of culture as a people. One way to begin engaging pop culture responsibly is to expose ourselves deliberately to its content and carriers. In this way, we identify the themes and values of the culture that surrounds us and place them in the context of our own Christian perspectives. Now, that's uncomfortable for many of us, especially, and I underscored the word deliberately, because many times we're, we're exposed to the world and we don't like what we're exposed to and we retreat. But this is making a conscious effort to expose ourselves to what's going on in the world. And I know I fall very, very short. I know in the office, when the office staff are speaking about some something, particularly in the entertainment uh, uh, world events, I'm a little more up on. But it's, it's, if it's in the entertainment world, I don't have a clue what they're talking about. And I lose, perhaps, an opportunity to be a light, to be salt. A good, good example of this is the recent um, movie, The Passion of Christ. Everybody was, over a period of a couple of weeks or a month or so, was buzzing about this movie. I confess I didn't see it. I probably should have. I would have understood better what people were talking about. But I did read about everything I could find on it so I could be prepared to engage in discussion when it came up. And I did. And it was really a neat experience. So being aware of that was very helpful. How many other missed opportunities, though, are there out there because I'm shielding myself from, didn't advance the slide, I'm shielding myself from, perhaps, um, the culture that's out there. Just, um, let's see, the other day, uh, Saturday, the 17th, uh, there was an article in our local newspaper about the passion. And it says that less than uh, 1% of the film viewers said they had made a profession of faith because of the Mel Gibson film, according to a poll that was released. Immediate reaction to the movie seemed to be quite intense, but people's memories are short, 
and are easily redirected in a media-saturated, fast-paced culture like ours. The article goes on, though, to, to um, give examples of what local churches in our area did with the release of that film, some of them buying thousands of tickets and handing them out, um, others dedicating a whole month-long series of Bible studies or in, um, sermons, others were sending out postcards inviting folks to church, and according to the article, church attendance seemed to respond uh, to this massive outreach but it was because those churches were clued in to what was going on in the culture, being salt and light. How else can we be salt and light? Um, In Ephesians, it says that um, we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. What does it mean to reprove? Literally, it means to expose. So we are exposing darkness by being light. What Jesus said in Matthew, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. If we are lights in our community, then the effect of that light is to expose the darkness around us. And also in John 3, where Jesus said, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be Reproved. How about the church as salt and light? Much of what we think about in being salt and light is focused on us as individuals. What about, do we have a role as a church to be salt and light corporately? In Romans it says, for as, for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the church is herself only when she exists for humanity. She must take her part in the social life of the world, not lording over men, but helping and serving them. She must tell men, whatever they're calling, what it means to live in Christ, to exist for others. How do we do that as a church? I believe by making ourselves a loving community attractive to the world. Making ourselves attractive to the world. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in bond, in the bond of peace. And we need to be an attractive draw, magnet, if you will, to the world. When we are light, they need to be drawn to the light because we love one another. And in the process, in a very practical way, the other thing we need to do is equip each other to know and defend the faith, to lead exemplary lives, to build strong marriages and families, to be good stewards. Frankly, all the things we do here at camp. And I've I've thought about that in preparing this forum, that that's what this is all about, isn't it? Where we come together as a church family. So the church indeed has a role in being salt and light. And then finally, how do we do it? Well, consistent with the theme of this year's camp, It's not us that does it at all. 
It's Jesus Christ. It's God working through us that gives us the power to be salt and light. And, and um, to be sons of God. And the verse that I found so fascinating last night that tied into the sermon and Inspiration Hour and that the entire Inspiration Hour was those two verses. That's what it's all about. Recognizing our weakness. For when we are weak, then we are strong. If we want to be salt and light as individuals, as a church, we need to recognize where the strength comes from. So... How can we be salt and light, recognize our calling, appreciate the difference between in the world and of the world, permeate society, reprove the darkness, the role for the church, and then power? So, what are the opportunities that we might have to be salt and light? First of all, and most importantly, bloom where you're planted. If you're looking for opportunities to be salt and light, you don't need to look any further than where you are. God placed you there to be salt and light, to bloom where you are planted. But also, Richard Westfall said that while a coherent Christian worldview, education and practice lays the foundation for a healthy church, family, and society, the framework for advancing the kingdom is provided by what he calls developing a funnel of ambassadors. Do we think about being a funnel of ambassadors from the church out into our communities? And in so doing, to every culture-shaping arena, do we consciously view our role as that? Where are the opportunities? Well, how about academia? How about media and journalism? Film, popular music, politics, financial Wall Street, advertising, sports? fine arts, medicine, and the list goes on and on. Why? Because we are called to be salt and light where we are, and we are to touch every aspect of society. Here's another view. Colson has said that we should stand courageously against evil, proclaiming the word and presenting a worldview informed by Judeo-Christian truth, protests against immoral laws and practices like partial birth abortion, are one example of this. Fighting against repressive laws are another, as in religious liberty cases. And we must debate ethical issues, as in the growing arena of medical research. I sense we're getting a little uncomfortable when we're talking about that as a people. I know I am. When you're looking at words like protest and fight, even debate, are we prepared to do that? Is it our role? How can we be light? And salt and light, how can we influence this culture? Where are the opportunities? I'd like to share a few examples as we kind of get to the end of our time here. As I had mentioned, I, when I knew I was doing this uh, forum, then suddenly kind of the radar screen was up and I was looking more consciously at, at the paper and with respect to uh, examples of salt and light or, and so forth, and I was surprised how much there was. Um, in our local newspaper on July 10th, there is an article on the front page, Pastors Urge Members to Fight Gay Marriage. And I'll read a little bit of that. It says, the, Rick, the Reverend Rick Haim of 
Christ Memorial Baptist Church is convinced, is convinced that the sanctity of marriage is threatened by gay weddings and on Sunday will urge church members to take action. Quote, I'm sure the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, homosexual marriages are an abomination. Just as the courts have forced the travesty of abortion on us, I worry that judges are trying to force same-sex marriage and civil unions on us, and so forth. And the article dealt with the fact that last Sunday, apparently, was, um, was entitled Protect Marriage Sunday a national day of worship, prayer, and political awareness that's been called by various Christian um, conservative evangelical leaders. There is an example of a group of Christians trying to influence society on a specific issue. Now here's one that I found interesting. Very uh, heart-rending situation where a mother was awakened uh, or called to the door late at night, came to the door and was shot, killed in her front door. And it had to do because of a squabble that her son had with another person from the, the neighborhood. And the uh, title of the article, Slain Mother, Remember crown, Crowd Asked to Turn Grief into Action. And that's what caught my eye, turning grief into action. And what this is about is impacting the culture, of course, of violence that we have in our communities. The article begins, Candle wax and tears dripped onto the sidewalk Sunday night as the husband of this poor woman stepped to the edge of his Wilmington front porch to tell the assembled mourners how a gunman killed his wife. Under the elm tree in front of their home, Sunday night, mourners wiped tears from their eyes and sweat from their brows as a handful of pastors and political leaders talked about God's comfort and the need for a changed community. And there was, as a result of that, an outpouring from the community, and the churches in the community took the lead. And they said, we're not going to fight violence with violence. We're going to put an end to this. We're going to end the cycle of violence. And it called upon real activism on the part of the community where they lived to do that. But it was a church taking the lead, salt and light. Um, there is an organization called Christian Educators Association International. Now, if anyone is a teacher in here, maybe you would like to belong to this. Um, I stumbled across this also um, in the last month or so. Christian teachers from all over the nation will confront controversies such as same-sex marriage, abortion, and religious freedom in the classroom when they hold their national convention. Um, as Christian teachers, we are deeply concerned about cultural issues. And then they list ex some examples of those in the um, press release. And the whole notion of this is to promote uh, Christian principles in curriculum. Salt and light, how can we do that? If you're a teacher, maybe you want to become a member of an organization like that, and that is a way that you can be active in impacting the culture of the classroom. Um, focus on the family, I just received this, uh, formed a new corporation. It's a political action committee, believe it or not, because they have found that the interpretation of the courts are such that they, as a nonprofit organization, cannot directly influence legislation. And of course, where much of this will be remedied, they believe, 
is in legislation. So they've formed an organization. Its purpose was, is to provide a platform for informing, inspiring, and rallying those who deeply care about the family uh, to a greater involvement in the moral, cultural, and political issues that threaten the nation. So maybe you want to support that if you want to be salt and light. Is that an example? I don't know. It's an election year, anybody notice? And uh, you may be getting surveys at home. I just received one. It's from a group called the Heritage Foundation. And I noticed on the back of the survey, they're asking me, do I think public policy should promote marriage and discourage illegitimate births? Do, I, do you think marriage should be limited to one man and one woman? Do you think children should get a better education, would get a better education if their parents could choose which school they attend? And do you think private organizations such as the Boy Scouts should have the right to adhere to traditional values? This is on an election year survey. I typically pitch stuff like that. Maybe I'll be salt and light by responding to that and expressing my viewpoints. And maybe if a lot of us did that, surveys like that could then be published and, and could influence um, our electorate, people who are making the laws. How about internationally? What can we do to impact our culture internationally? Well, in the recent Wall Street Journal uh, front page, evangelicals give US foreign policy an activist twinge. And I'll just read a, a quick excerpt from that. Um, led uh, in part by a Mr. Horowitz, a neoconservative at the Hudson Institute think tank, Evangelicals are embracing international causes with the same moral fervor they have long brought to domestic issues. Since 1998, they have helped with federal, win federal laws to fight religious persecution overseas, to crack down on international sex trafficking, and to help resolve one of Africa's longest and bloodiest civil wars since southern Sudan. In so doing, evangelical groups, once among America's staunchest isolationists are making a mark on US foreign policy. They have tipped the balance, at least for the moment, in the perennial rivalry in Washington between realists who believe the US has limited capacity to change the world and shouldn't try, and idealists who strive to give US conduct a moral purpose. And the article goes on to list various church groups and others who are doing this, who are at the, sort of at the heart of, of this cultural change internationally. Again, an example, perhaps, of salt and light. So I've tried to, um, as we wrap this up here, I've tried to deliver a evidence, if you will, a case for why we need to be salt and light in today's society. We examined what it means to be salt and light, how we can be salt and light, and we've looked at a couple of opportunities and even examples for being salt and light. I'd like to finish with uh, an article that I saw in a July 12th Business Week magazine, which I think provides a lesson from history, how one person began in a movement that changed the culture of an entire nation. And let me read that. It was January 1956, and a crowd of angry black men, women, and children milled 
outside Martin Luther King Jr.'s smoldering house in Montgomery, Alabama. Many brandished broken soda bottles, 38 caliber guns or knives, hungry for revenge after white extremists had hurled homemade bombs through a window endangering King's wife and 10-week-old baby. The humiliation of -of back-of-the-bus oppression and the nation's searing hostility had pushed them to the doorstep of violence. King faced the fiery throng, shaken but calm, and urged restraint. Quote, I want you to love your enemies, he told them, persuading the crowd to reject violence that, that night. Quote, we must meet hate with love. His eloquence combined with an irresistible sense of righteousness helped harness a people's fury and turn it into action. The miracle of Martin Luther King was that he was not only, uh, it was, was that he not only understood the morality of nonviolent social change, but also made it work. So there's an example. This is where our civil rights movement in this country came from. As they say, changed the culture of an entire nation, and it's still changing. But it began with what? Resisting violence, espousing love and Christian values. As one person, he was able to do that. It seems like a daunting challenge for us today to be salt and light in such a dark world. My prayer is that we're encouraged. My prayer is that we've been perhaps stimulated or provoked a little bit to think in deeper sense as to the culture around us. We're there so that we, as salt and light, can stand firm for Jesus Christ and influence the world around us. Thank you for your attention this morning. Um, We could open it up to any questions you might have. If there are any questions or comments. Roger. You got my attention when you said uh, we should find out more what's going on in the world. Uh, how do you do that? I, I can't go to a lot of these places, but I don't know what what's going on either. Yeah, question was, um, uh, how do we become more knowledgeable about what's going on in the world? And um, the one slide, uh, one of the um, Christian thinkers uh, was quoted as saying that we need to deliberately expose ourselves to what's going on out there. How do you do that? That's a good question. Um, in addition to print, re- uh, what I had already alluded to, being sort of aware and sensitive to these issues as you're looking at your local newspaper and Uh, There is a national uh, magazine or publication I know that Lori gets called World Magazine, and she's kind enough to share it with me after she's finished with it. And it it provides a Christian viewpoint or perspective on a whole range of national and international issues. So it's it's, it's really a good source to to read that through uh, a Christian perspective. But really being exposed to things. I'm in the workplace every day in an office, and the people in the office are talking about different things. And it's so easy just to hide under a rock. I'd rather, you know, I don't want to get involved. But maybe, maybe I need to get a little bit more sensitized to what they're talking about and interject Christian principles, interject the gospel, looking for opportunities. 
and they'll come if I seek them, but they won't if I hide from them. Janet? Right. Good point. Some programming that's out there, uh, a lot of times the media will build up a series that's on television or something, and the whole world's going to be watching this thing but you, right? What Janet's saying is a very good point. Take a look at it. You don't have to watch the whole thing, but get the gist of it. Try to understand what it's about. Excellent point. Ah, ah, didn't think of that. The computer. Yeah, that's true. Just about anything you want. Yeah. Yeah, the problem is being, yeah, we know what's going on. The problem is being every place. And that's where per, being uh, leaven, permeating society, there are enough of us that we're out there anyway in different areas. God has placed us there. Brother Bob. Right. I didn't know that. So there are actually are resources on the internet that will pull together what's happening in contemporary society, in the media, and, and present it with a Christian perspective. That's really great. I didn't know that. Barbara. focus on the family. They have Citizen Magazine. They also yep. have a media evaluation in terms of movies and things like that. Yeah, Focus on the Family does have a lot of material like that. Excellent. I always see the program on the radio and the focus on the family. hmm their radio programming is very good too. They are very much on top of what's going on in culture and society. Tony. Yeah, I think I think his fear was that go and get involved in stuff like that to really experience it. You don't have to get married to a guy to know that, that uh, homosexuality is inappropriate, except that you know it's going on and what you need to do to fight that. Right. So you don't have to get tainted right. to to be able to defend your, your mm-hmm. Christian beliefs. You know, when I read the, uh, being sensitized to this topic now, when I read about the mother that was slain at the front door and the response from the local church community, I was thinking, we needed to be there. We needed to stand arm to arm in in that community 
which is a black community would have been uh, stuck out like a sore thumb. We should have been down there in force saying, we stand with you against violence, breaking this culture of violence. You know, So that's the sort of thing we need to do. We need to get sensitized to it, look for it, pray for strength, and then guidance from the Lord to make a difference. Peter. And our motivation for getting involved in these things is not to make the world a better place, right, but to preach, right. the, Thank preach you. the gospel. Excellent. Our motivation, let me repeat that because that, that I was, you said it so succinctly and I tripped all over that in the slides. I was trying to say the same thing. Our motivation is not to save the world but, but bring the gospel to an individual, basically. Is, is, thank you. I think that's uh, uh, the example or, or, or getting involved, I think it begins at home. First. Begins at home, yes. We don't start, and our kids can, again, through their own lives. Mm-hmm. Portrayed it because we just can't get to every point. Yeah. With that, I, th- I was thinking the same thing. It begins at home because we tend to get, at least we do, um, get so set in our schedule that I don't have the fu- feel sometimes that I don't have the flexibility mm-hmm. to drop everything to go <coughs> stand out in somebody's front yard. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, true. Very true. I think our time is up. So may the Lord bless you and thank you very much for your. Thank you.